The following podcast was recorded in 2021 and released on a separate platform. IC leadership, thought leadership, titles, current events, and technology may have changed and evolved since its original release. Let me be clear. China's policy says that it will use any knowledge or technology it acquires for its military. And that's not conjuncture. It's not profiling or analysis. It's China's stated position for decades. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, NIU's VP of Research and Infrastructure, Manole Priniotakis, came back to the Intelligence Jumpstart to speak with Anna Puglisi about China's competitive and innovative edge on S&T education and development. Anna is a senior fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Previously, she served as the National Counterintelligence Officer for East Asia, advising senior U.S. and foreign government officials at the highest levels, academia and the private sector, on counterintelligence issues. She played a prominent role in drafting the most recent U.S. national counterintelligence strategy and designing mitigation strategy for the public and private sectors to protect technology. As a member of the Senior Analytics Service, she developed multidisciplinary efforts to understand global technology developments and their impact on the U.S. competitiveness and national security, as well as efforts to target U.S. technology. Anna has co-authored two books, including Chinese Industrial Espionage and China's Quest for Foreign Technology. Anna Puglisi, welcome to NIU's Intelligence Jumpstart. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being part of our inaugural season. We might as well just jump right into things. You recently testified before the uh, Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence on China's S&T strategy and a challenge to the U.S. And you spent some time talking about the differences in our systems, that they, the Chinese have a different system with different values. Can you explain what you meant by that in the context of science and technology and really why it matters. Sure. I think that's a really fundamental piece in understanding some of the behaviors that we're seeing and some of the challenges. China's central government policies and the role of the state really create this different system. What really uh, underlies that is includes talent programs that exploit China's diaspora, S&T development programs with acquisition strategies that are built straight into them and China's policy on civil-military fusion. And that one I think we hear a lot about. There's a huge discussion about exactly what it means. And there's often a lot of debate or a lot of commentary on, you know, well, you know, our universities work with our military or our businesses work with our military. But let me be clear, China's policy says that it will use any knowledge or technology it acquires for its military. And that's not conjuncture, it's not profiling or analysis, it's China's stated position for decades. And the really difference is, is that citizens, businesses, universities in China, they can't say no. And that's baked into their national security laws as well as their cybersecurity law. So in terms of you know comparisons to other places, the U.S., for instance, you talk about companies, universities working with the, the government. 
But the key difference is, you know, the Chinese really have to respond to government demands, as do any companies operating in China. Right. I mean, we're seeing the largest crackdown on civil society in China, especially under Xi, since 1989. And it's, it's important to remember that, the kind of authoritarian government that we're dealing with. Fundamentally, this system then is effectively at odds with the key assumptions of a globalized economy, open markets, reciprocity, transparency, sharing of scientific information. These things run counter to effectively what that system represents. Is that a fair way of putting it? I would think that's a fair way to put it. I mean, China's central government policies and programs really undermine global norms of commerce and collaboration and and science, basically. And part of it is because China is really engaged in a strategic rivalry with the U.S., that its management with the U.S. has really been designed to mask key aspects of that rivalry. And that's part of the, the part that makes these discussions so difficult and also hides those differences in the system. And you know, when you look at these programs and these policies that have been put in place, and I say these are not new policies and programs, a lot of the same themes we see over decades that strive to really take a zero-sum view of collaborations. And so seek, seek them out to fill strategic gaps in China's not only military modernization, but economic development. Seek to leverage and, and really use its market to acquire that technology and technological know-how. You mentioned Xi looking at technology as a zero-sum, or technology competition maybe a better way of putting it, as a zero-sum game. Is he wrong? Is it not dissimilar to sort of Cold War competition? I know in some ways, you, know, you think about like even the atoms for peace concept, there was a sharing of technology, but at the same time, uh, I was looking the other day at the National Security Act of 1947, the original text, which by the way is remarkable in that it's only 16 pages long. But one of the pages is devoted to the stand-up of a research and development board, which was really focused on the development of technology for national security and assessment of technology. So given where the Chinese you know, are in their own development, putting yourself in his shoes, is it, a, is it a wrong position to be taking to be looking at technology competition as a zero-sum game? Well, I think, I think what we have to t think about is not necessarily whether it's right or wrong, but how do we engage in that kind of or with that kind of a system? And how do we then, you know, as open liberal democracies both ourselves and our allies and like-minded think about both protecting the system and the values that we hold dear and not not shutting our doors to China, but thinking about, okay, when we enter into these engagements, we go into them with eyes wide open. That is the ultimate goal of those collaborations as opposed to the research itself or an open, fair level playing field. In terms of global collaboration, or at least maybe a better way of looking at it is sort of, you know, the potential for China's integration in the global economic system. Going back about 15 years, there seemed to be an underlying assumption that the integration of China into the global economic system would change it, that these behaviors would modify uh, in one way, shape, or form. You know, it's, of course, hindsight is always 20-20, but looking back, was that effectively an incorrect assumption or faulty analysis? I would venture to say that I think that was a falsely analysis that and the hope, right, of wanting China to enter as a responsible 
player, as a responsible stakeholder into the world community. Um, and so those assumptions that you talk about, I've written quite a bit about, I, I call them the myth of the stateless global society. In, the, in assuming, and we still hear that when we treat China as a neutral actor, that in order to be innovative, you have to have a democracy, that as China became more capable and then came richer, that automatically they become more democratic and more open and that those irritants in the relationship, such as market access, the IP theft and the leveraging of collaborations and, and basically targeting of technology would, would all kind of fall by the wayside. Unfortunately, what we've seen is a doubling down on that. And, you know, as China has become more capable and stronger, especially using its economic clout to actually silence its, its critics in a lot of ways and use that strength to, to leverage not only U.S. businesses, but you see what some of the challenges that some of our European allies and friends are having. There's uh, some surprise that an authoritarian government has been able to continue to develop an innovation society and a technology ecosystem. I'm reminded of a, a book that was written at the end of World War II by the man who led the U.S. mission to try to figure out whether or not the Germans were developing a nuclear bomb. Samuel Gutschmidt in his book, All, the uh, Alsos, about the Alsos mission. And one of the things he talks about extensively is the faults during World War II of this authoritarian system where everybody was afraid to question the leaders, and especially the great man. The issue was uh, Werner Heisenberg not having, having made some mistakes and not, nobody wanted to question him, that technology and innovation could not flourish in an in a, a authoritarian system. I think the Soviets proved that that was not necessarily true. There was a great deal of technology advancement on the Soviet system. So as the Chinese have continued to develop their you know, culture of innovation, is this surprising that this has been able to persist even under this system? So I always, as some of the listeners out there are going to be familiar with, I usually talk about my myths of that innovation is always the elephant in the room when we talk about China. And I, I talk about what I call my myths of China's S&T development, because that's a really important point. And I think how you view whether China is innovative or not impacts the risk calculation. And that's not only for our policymakers, but for you know our academics and for our, our business people. Because you know if you inherently believe someone is not innovative or five or 10 years behind, then, you know, the kind of deal that you're willing to make or the collaborations that you're willing to have are very different because of the assumptions that are baked into that. And I think that in some ways it's, it's hubris. My, my personal favorite of those is that we'll always out innovate them. I mean, I know we hear that quite a bit from our business community as well as our, our academics, but it's important to note that the emphasis that the Chinese government has put on S&T development from its opening. And we've really seen it in stages. You know, And that's not to say that China is 20 feet tall across the board, because it is a very stratified system. But when you look back to, you know, think about in the 1980s or right around 1980, that you know, coming out of the Cultural Revolution, that universities were essentially shut down and a whole swaths of the population didn't really attend ten university. And, you know, over the last several decades of the fundamental foundational investments, you know, first in capital projects, I myself having studied there in the late 90s, seeing you know, revitalization at some of those universities and really the seeds of some of these talent programs. You know, returnees have always been a central part of China's development strategies, but you started to see that take off a little bit more in the late 90s because there was more for them to come back to. So, I mean, I think the university that I studied at was particularly striking 
interesting because when I was there, it was really onesies and twosies, right? So one one person in each of the science, and this is in the sciences. This is not, we're not talking about some of the social sciences, but the hard sciences. But you know, when you have one or two people in a department, that's not going to change the culture of the department. That might change the culture in that lab. And I did see that. That was very different. But the subsequent policies, you know, fast forward 10 years, that same university had over 200 faculty, 20 new deans, and the university president that was a returnee. And you see that across multiple of the high tier universities. And so it's building that foundation and it's brick by brick. And so oftentimes, again, we'll also hear, well, it doesn't matter if you know China gets X or China gets Y, because that's not the most cutting edge. But the way China th- talks about innovation that's why it's really important to read not only the English, but also the, the Chinese language material is it, it incorporates three different definitions. It's what we think about as cutting edge and bleeding edge, but it's also new to China and also new to China and modified. You know, so when you look at the landscape of all three of those definitions, that includes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And to expand a little bit more too, that you know what China has done as well, and we hear this from a lot of our own faculty members is they really have won in some ways the PR war of saying that they are very pro-science. And so the facilities, the new facilities that are going in, whether it be sequencing capacity, light sources, those big science facilities, they're, they're an attraction to world-class scientists. And that also, you know, if the science isn't there quite yet, they're key enablers for that future mm-hmm. discovery. Those, those big science facilities are there's that important foundational piece. Now that you're in academia, you're interacting with academics, and I've seen you interact with academics in other settings. Have you seen over the last maybe decade academia's views of the Chinese presence or at least the relationships with uh, either Chinese scholars or the Chinese government uh, evolve over time? Well, I think all of the foundation and the foundational investments that we've seen the Chinese government put into its S&T foundation have really you know, built Chinese science. And you, know, you see increasing profile of you know, world-class scientists across the board, across multiple disciplines. And of course, you know, our academics want to collaborate with that excellence. That's, that's what we want. We want both the best and brightest to come here um, and stay, as well as to, you know, to engage in collaborations. And that's really the basis of science. I think where the challenge comes, and it comes back to one of your initial questions, is the difference in the system and, you know, how that impacts the ability of individual scientists or even individual institutions to have independent collaborations or interactions you know, when the pressure from the central government and these policies incentivize them to do different kinds of things. And I think that's one of the messages and one of the challenges that we have in, and we've seen play out, you know, with the questions about the Department of Justice's China initiative and some of the discussions about, okay, how do we implement research security, whether it be in new legislation or in existing grants. And so I think this is really a really important point because you know, there really is, there's no room for xenophobia or ethnic profiling in the U.S. It really goes against everything that we have stood for as a nation. But it, precisely because of these values, we really need to find a principal way forward in dealing with China's central government policies. And by pretending that the systems are the same, like we do a really do a disservice to Chinese scientists that are wanting to do the right thing because of the pressure we can't possibly understand that the Chinese government can place on them. And I think that's one of the challenges in having open conversations and talking about these these differences 
so that our own academics can understand kind of some of those challenges. So with our own academics, I mean, there's the, the understanding the pressures that the Chinese are under, but there's also, they have their own pressures at home, right, to to publish, mm-hmm. to advance their own research. And I, I recently had a conversation with an engineering professor at a prominent U.S. university who was asked about or, or knows that there's questions about, you know, so many of the STEM students coming from overseas. And, and one of the things that she said was, you know, she had colleagues from China, from Iran, from India. Uh, some were U.S. citizens, some were not. But when it comes to recruiting and accepting doctoral students, they understand the good programs in those countries. They may know mm-hmm. the faculty members. They know that they're going to get somebody who's going to help them advance their own research and mm-hmm. advance their own careers. Uh, in a way that she said in most U.S. Uh, academics don't even understand, that you may get a student applying from you know, any of the many engineering programs around the country there are some that are obviously better known than others, but somebody coming from a smaller program may be a good student, but they don't really have that sense. It's just that there's a broad, a, and maybe as education expanded, especially in China, it's not as easy as it once was, but they said uh, she didn't blame her colleagues for accepting primarily students from programs that they understood well, and also maybe had you know language in common and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as a factor on how U.S. academics are maybe interacting with with students from other countries, in particular from China? Right. So I think it really hits on the point of one of the recommendations I often make when I'm I'm asked about, okay, you know, how do we start to mitigate or deal with the challenge of China is really looking about improving ourselves. And we really need to invest in the future and recognize that includes students. Um, that includes the STEM pipeline. You know, we here in the U.S. have, you know, it's no no secret that, you know, that it's a leaky pipeline. And, you know, we have whole swaths of our, our own populations that you know, are underrepresented in these programs. And so that, you know, that on the one hand is, is a, you know, to have a technically proficient workforce and also to you know, be able to participate in industries of the future is a challenge. And that's not to say that we don't want the best and brightest from all over. I think one of the challenges with some of these talent programs is what we've seen, and it's been documented in in some of the literature, is part of the stipulations on some of these programs is that they participants take students or take postdocs from specific entities in China. And so if that is the case, that means the opportunity costs. We're not necessarily getting the best and brightest, even from those countries. We're getting who the Chinese government wants to put in those labs and considering 10%. Only 10% of PhD students are, are self-funding, and that's, that's a lot of U.S. taxpayer money. Yeah, it was interesting. That, that conversation with her was specifically about doctoral students. Mm-hmm. The interesting aspect, uh, or one of the interesting aspects of the conversation was at the master's level, that you said only 10% of doctoral students are self-funding. Most master's students are right. self-funding. Mm-hmm. And then that's a pathway onto doctoral programs, and so they're... they're uh, sources of revenue for right. for these programs at the master's mm-hmm. level. So I guess maybe the same challenge, it's the students that are being selected to be sent over to right. participate in these programs. But you see that with postdocs as well, right? And I think 
one of the challenges and even with some of the, I mean, not only at universities, but even at some of the, the government labs, such as the DOE labs, that you know, the willingness to accept salaries, especially if you're already subsidized by another government, that would not be sustaining for an American postdoc or, or someone that doesn't have that that um, same subsidy. And so, you know, one of the, uh, also like when we, we talk about, okay, how do you, you approach or start to deal with some of these, these challenges is, you know, looking at what is the true cost, both from an administrative perspective, because in a lot of cases, the principal investigator is not paying that administrative cost. They're, they're only paying what they see up front. And so that creates a little bit more of a challenge in an unequal playing field. I guess at the same time, we talk about some of the funding that comes with people, or at least comes from the Chinese government. We have seen some trend in the in recent years of, in particular, on things like the Confucian Institutes of uh, universities now turning back some of those programs and some of that funding. And is that based on a broader understanding by universities of the potential threats or problems that they that these programs bring with them? I hope you've enjoyed our inaugural season, which included thought leaders from inside and outside the IC. Over the past seven episodes, you've heard from a range of thinkers and experts from academia and government, hosted by members of the NIU community. For this episode, I wanted to spend a minute on NIU. NIU has a long history going back six decades, mostly with the Department of Defense, but since 2010 formally, and 2021 organizationally with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. NIU has had multiple names over its years of existence, and faculty and staff measure their longevity of service by how many acronyms under which they've served, most recently the National Defense Intelligence College, or NDIC, and before that the Joint Military Intelligence College, or JMIC. Since 2010, we've been the National Intelligence University, with the establishment of a second school within the university and a formal transfer of authority to ODNI with the Defense Intelligence Agency serving as executive agent. The combined efforts of NIU, DIA, and ODNI after a legal transfer by Congress and approval by the Department of Education and NIU's accreditors led to an organizational move in 2021. So we've been NIU ever since 2010, and we think this name will stick. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart, and I hope you enjoyed this inaugural season. We look forward to bringing you another season soon. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. Drop us a line if you have any ideas for future episodes on both the low side page, www.ni-u.edu, and the high side, www.niu.ic.gov. You can find a link to our podcast show pages and a feedback survey to provide any ideas you might have for future coverage. Look forward to connecting with you soon. Confucius Institutes are, they rarely we see that involved with STEM. So um, some of the challenges with the Confucius Institutes were concerns of, in some universities, 
not so much here in the U.S., but we were seeing actually um, in the EU where universities were no longer having their own faculty members that actually teach Chinese language or Chinese language and culture. And so you had entities fully funded by the Chinese government and the Chinese Ministry of Education putting forth a curriculum that at these universities and uh, teaching all of the students uh, foreign language. And then the concern of the role that some of these institutes and their faculty or their, their teachers play in some of the pushback that we were seeing on college campuses, whether it be the Dalai Lama um, coming to visit or discussions regarding Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, and really the kind of challenge to that academic freedom and freedom of, of speech. And so so that that's one um, area where I believe uh, was one of some of the drivers for campuses to no longer have those Confucius Institutes on their on their campus. On the other hand, what we're seeing with some of the funding for in the STEM area are um, increasingly, especially at some of the top universities, are fully funded postdocs, fully funded graduate students, and not only the fully funding but then also extra funding for the research. And, and that, you know, science is an international endeavor. That's fine. It's the transparency issue that really um, comes down. And so if you see a lot of the more recent conversations are science is open, it's about collaboration, it's about transparency and reciprocity, then those foreign sources of funding should be disclosed. Uh, well, I guess that gets us into a phrase that uh, you, know, you used in your testimony and uh, you know made its way into the uh, last administration's national security strategy of non-traditional collectors. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you mean by non-traditional collectors? Sure. So and this is, I think, one of the things that really gets at the human cost of China's behavior. And I think one of the biggest challenges to understanding um, the scale and scope of China's actions and really designing mitigation strategies, because this is something that is very, very different than what the U.S. has had to face before, and, and really our system isn't set up for it. You, know, you mentioned earlier, you know, how we, you know, what science was like during the, the days of the Soviet Union. And, and you know, we think back that our, our counterintelligence systems are actually still set up you know, traditionally for that, where, you know, there's a big focus on intelligence officers, a big focus on military end use, things that are illegal, things that have a direct military application. But what we see what China doing is very different. China leverages and uses its scientists, its students, its business people, and particularly those who work on different research projects and industry to target the technology and the technological information. And these are not, this is not analysis. This is, again, you mentioned being able to uh, go in and actually look at Chinese language policies and programs. These are programs that we see the Chinese government have had on the books since the early 90s. There are things called two bases, where you can have one base in the country where you're studying and one base in China. Serve China by multiple means. This means that you don't just have to return. You can actually, you can sponsor students. You can apply for funding where you are currently working um, and use that to serve and to fill gaps for China. You can help people get visas. You can you know, broker introductions um, and then one of the other uh, policies that we have seen reflected throughout the Chinese um, language policies and programs, again, since the early 90s, is one that's called serve in place. And that means that you don't have to return. You can stay where you are and serve the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. And that makes it very challenging because that's something that we don't think about, I think, as Americans, that you know, someone that, we, you know, that has been welcomed here, who's lived here, is 
you know, often either a U.S. person or a U.S. Sit, um, participating or part of a central government program to undermine that, you know, our openness. You, know, you mentioned a number of different programs that have been around for quite a long time, and, and I know you've spoken publicly about a complementary web of programs and policies. Is it a complementary web, or is it is it really that organized? You know, it's it's actually it's very interesting. I think a recent work that we just did that talked about, we, I think really we had a catchy title called China's Tech Wish List. This was very recently talks about the SNT diplomats and. What's very striking is the bureaucracy, both in China and out of China. We call it the advocacy groups that we see and these SNT diplomats throughout the world that are put in place to actually facilitate these programs and policies. So there's a lot of forethought that goes into that. And the pipeline. So from being an entity in China where you can fill out a form, it goes into a central repository, tells you know what, what kind of technology or kind of person you're looking for, that then goes to the Ministry of Science and Technology that then goes out globally to different you know, embassies and then the, you know, the introductions. So it, 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 and that's not to say there's a big puppet master, you know, in Beijing controlling all of this, because I think that's also one of the challenges of, you know, of the system. Oftentimes when we get asked, okay, well, what's the list? You know, everyone always wants the list. Comes back to those non-traditional collectors that, so the people that are experts that are working on those programs, they know exactly where, you know, whatever they need to, to fill a gap or what kind of equipment that they need to, to get to that next level. And, and that makes it challenging. What we uncovered with this report as well is that because you're using experts, right, you're not playing telephone. You don't have a non-technical person, you know, either intelligence officer or case officer asking somebody technical questions. These are the experts in those fields. And so they have a nuanced understanding of not only what lab, but sometimes even what person in that lab that has that required expertise. In that same report, uh, you talk about the uh, Ministry of Science and Technology's overseas activities, and you seem to have relied on these, I think what you were just referencing, these international technology cooperation opportunities. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that right? That, so maybe you can describe the methodology a little bit more on, on how you put together this story. Sure. So we um, we actually looked at, these are actual Chinese language documents by the Ministry of Science and Technology and other parts of the bureaucracy. And what was striking, how we actually put together the pipeline or the flowchart was because we actually found a flowchart where China itself described this process. And it showed how the inputs came in and where the outputs went out and how the different parts work together. And that graphic is actually in the report. It, well, you described in the report that about half of the opportunities were in Russia, United States, UK, and Japan, and really only, I think you said 12% in the US. So that other 50%, that's a, that's a fairly large amount that you know, mm -hmm. this is, is uh, not just a us problem, this is a, a global issue. Right? right, right. And that's an excellent point. And that's why working with our you know, allies and like partners, like-minded is so important to highlight this kind of counter-competitive behavior. You, you mentioned the myth of Chinese innovation earlier, but maybe this brings us to an earlier myth. I think a 19th century myth, myth of the um, myth of the Chinese market, right? Mm -hmm. That everybody was always going to sell something to China. I think there were some kind of crass phrases. You know, everybody in China added a quarter inch. I said everybody in China as opposed to the phrase <laughs> at the time. But everybody in China added a quarter inch to their shirt. It would make you know millionaires of people in Manchester, garment manufacturers in Manchester. But now with the you know you talked about the 
ability to fund not only students, but also provide additional funding for the researchers. There is a level of economic might, given the economic trajectory of China over the last several decades. How much of a sort of core factor is that? The one, the sort of economic maybe stability is, uh, is a good word to use, or success. I know that there's still hundreds of millions of, of rural subsistence farmers, hundreds of millions of urban poor, but there is a level of disposable income for another several hundred or a few hundred million people in a way that there really wasn't before. So like, how big of a factor is the internal Chinese marketplace now as a sort of underlying you know, base support for the government, but mm -hmm. also its ability to, you know, spread money overseas, whether through Belt Road or other overseas engagements. Right. That's a, that's an excellent point. And you know, that's, and, and I often also highlight, of course, people are still making money, but I think, you know, as we are challenged and as we are thinking about, okay, what is the long-term implications of some of these policies and programs? It's okay. How do we take a step back and ensure that there will be that there will be manufacturing or there will be uh, capabilities sustained in the in the U.S. economy. I think one of the things that's really important to highlight is China's strategic emerging industries programs and policies. So they actually talk about this and the importance of the China market to these emerging areas, and, and it includes everything. I mean, it's very very broad category. So everything from biotech to telecommunications to new materials, new energy vehicles, batteries things like that. But what's striking is, is China actually articulates the importance of winning the China market first. And so, you know, while it's a huge market and you know, people have made a lot of money, we're not dealing on a free, you know, open and level playing field. And there's not, you know, Chinese companies or American companies don't have the same market access, freedom of movement as Chinese companies do have here in the US or in, in Europe. And so what China talks about is the importance of you know, competition amongst its own companies, you know, building up those national champions, winning the China market first and using that to kind of springboard out. And I think Huawei is a great example of that. You know, there was always so many jokes about the quality of Huawei technology and you know, nothing to worry, nothing to see here. And you, know, you see a slow progression or a very methodical progression from the 80s to the 90s to the, you know, to where we find ourselves now without a, a clear 5G tech or, or trusted partner brand from, you know, that we can do end-to-end -end solutions. And it's, it follows that playbook of, you know, winning the China market first, being able to sell, you know, in, in a, you know, lesser markets, building out that, that capabilities, putting everybody else out of, out of business, basically leveraging the strength of the state and the subsidies. And yet, especially in recent months, there's been um, what appears to be some reluctance on the part of the Chinese government about this uh, ability of some of these companies to operate overseas. We've seen the restrictions on on accessing U.S. capital markets for some companies. We frankly saw the disappearance of Jack Ma, who had been mm -hmm. a, I guess in theory still is, a, a prominent, uh, maybe the most prominent uh, Chinese businessman in the world and effectively is is gone from the scene. That. I was talking to somebody the other day who joked, finally, you know, there's something that the U.S. members of the U.S. Senate and Xi Jinping <laughs> can agree on, that neither of them want some Chinese companies accessing U.S. capital markets. But at the same time, I, you know, I was looking at an investment report from a U.S. state pension fund recently, and, you know, there are investments, by my count, 172 different Chinese companies worth billions of dollars. And that's frankly just the ones that had China in their name, because that was it was easiest to sort that way. 
I'm, mm -hmm. I'm guessing that there were several hundred more. So, you know, in the strange situation where these companies that have made that uh, strengthened domestically and then have listed overseas, we have state employees funding Chinese private development through the holding of Chinese investments. It creates a an unusual situation for, for us to be in. It does. And I think that comes back to part of our original conversation about the importance of recognizing how different the systems are. I mean, we think about the assumptions, the underlying assumptions that have been made, especially with the listing of some of these companies, that they were going to act like, because they, they look like, they act like something that we're familiar with. And in many cases, up until now, it's seemingly has been that way. But the transparency reporting requirements of a lot of these companies and, and really having the same transparency of their books as opposed to say, you know, a US company that links that lists has just not been the same. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, this is kind of a cautionary tale, not only for you know the individual Chinese companies and of course the individuals think about I mean the implications of you know we, we talk about individual scientists, individual students, individual business people being able to, you know, stand up or say no to the Chinese government. Here you have a billionaire running this this major global you know international tech company who runs afoul and can't do that so so i think it, it again it comes back to you know really acknowledging that our systems are not the same and i think in my testimony i talk about you know, we have to face the facts that beijing doesn't play by free market rules it doesn't respect ip and it's willing to act directly indirectly in a way to ensure its favorite companies win in the market and you know we often hear and i can't begin to tell you how many times even from you know from the late 80s well china would never do x because it's worried about the repercussions or it's worried about you know you fill in the blank and and every step along the way there the cost has been lower non-existent and so they keep marching on keep marching on well Recently, Xi Jinping gave this speech, which had this remarkable phrase that at least as it was translated is, you know, the Chinese people will never allow any foreign forces to bully, coerce, or enslave us. Whoever attempts to do that will surely break their heads on the steel great wall built with the blood and flesh of 1.4 billion Chinese people. Uh, and also he gave the speech wearing, you know, fashions favored by Mao. Um, there's not a lot of subtlety here. This is not, you know, Deng's hide and bide. This was a, a much more confrontational, uh, in-your-face approach, and I guess they're at that point where they they are able to do that. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, there's been multiple <laughs> debates. Yeah. No. There, there's been um, lots of debate about how that was translated, but I think you make an excellent point, and and also a very important point of you, know, you go back to hide and bide again. You know, reading the Chinese language material these sentiments have been articulated for decades. So, and, and with technology, it's, it's not a new thing. It's, it's a, this is also something that we've seen, you know, when we talk about the idea of the zero sum. So in addition to she, it's most recent, that was very colorful. In relation to technology, you know, she has talked with Susan May at 2018 that we need to seize the commanding heights of technical and technological innovation that AI is a vital driving force for a new round of technological revolution and industrial reform, and that China must control AI and ensure it's securely kept in their own hands, that science and technology is a national weapon, and that if China wants to be strong, it must have a powerful science and technology. And this is actually one of my favorites, that S&T innovations become critical support for increasing comprehensive national strength 
and that whoever holds the key to S&T innovation makes an offensive move in a chess game of S&T innovation and will be able to preempt its rivals and win advantages. Now, this is all happening when our own our own discussions around S&T are kind of doubling down on our view of collaboration as a you know, open endeavor and doubling down on the values of transparency, reciprocity, openness, global collaboration as a fundamental driver for this. So there's again a very very different approach to some of these uh, some of these areas. And that comes back to something you talked about earlier. I guess one of the challenges from the U.S. perspective of of addressing all of this. You used the word uh, xenophobia in early part of this discussion. And I know you recently started your testimony to the Senate with a pretty remarkable statement about your own grandparents having been immigrants, came to the country with little formal education, worked menial jobs, and made a new life for themselves. And that, uh, you know, I want to start with saying that there is no room for xenophobia or ethnic profile in the United States. It goes against everything we've stood for as a nation. Uh, It was very personal and very pointed. And I guess, why did you feel you needed to start off that way? Because I think it's important that we remember why the importance of of immigrants to our our nation, you know, and the role that we we need to have immigration and and not ignore the contributions all of those who have come before me before before that. And I think that that's what makes it so challenging as Americans, because you know China's policies and programs in some ways you know seek to exploit our challenges and our our differences and that we have to have and it's going to make us uncomfortable. I mean these kinds of conversations are going to make us very uncomfortable because it's challenging, but we can't ignore the policies, the challenges and that are really and I said this in my statement created by this nation state, you know, that is ever more authoritarian that doesn't share our values and has that different system, different regard for human rights. And it's really important, you know, despite, you know, in some ways, you know, China has definitely won the PR war with that in presenting itself as being pro-science along with the other because it has controlled the message on that. And so I think extreme positions on either side, whether it would be not have any students or not do anything, does not serve the U.S. And it's a, it's a win for China. It's remarkable that you talk about a country carrying out fairly remarkable uh, abuses of its own population across the board, but in particular in Xinjiang right now, can be seen as winning the uh, ER war. But mm-hmm. have they won? Is it too late? I don't think it's too late. I'm an optimist. I think I wouldn't count the U.S. out, but I think that you know, as I said, we have to have these hard conversations, and we have to look clearly at what China is doing. Well, Anna Puglisi. Thank you for an excellent conversation. We look forward to more of these hard conversations in the future. But thank you for being part of our inaugural season of Intelligence Jumpstart and for joining us with NIU today. No, thank you for having me. It was very interesting. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.